0: Well, as you can see from the screen this morning, the title of this morning's sermon is Praying to See Your Face. Praying to See Your Face. And the title represents one aspect of Paul's prayer, or this prayer of Paul that we will look at, Lord willing, here this morning. We'll get through this whole section. But what could possibly provoke this kind of prayer for another person? When you see a prayer like this, Praying to See Your Face, Now we'll see that Paul isn't praying that as it relates to some loved one in terms of a family member or a spouse. He's praying that about fellow believers. So what could possibly provoke that kind of prayer for another person? I'm praying that I could see your face. And you think about, have I ever prayed that before? And if I did, who was it relating to? Well, as I was thinking about it, imagine how loved, valued, dear, close, and important that person would have to be in order for you to set down in your private time and pray to see their face, to bring this to the Lord that I'm praying that I could see and then fill in the blank their face. Imagine how important, close, dear, valued, and loved that person would have to be before you would ever pray a prayer like this. And you see, the only way you could relate to this prayer is if you feel or have felt that way about someone. So as you sit there, That's how you could relate to Paul's prayers if you've ever felt that much love, value, closeness and importance in another person that you would have prayed that you could see their face. Now, you might not have said those exact words, but that you could see them again, that they would come home soon, they would come home quickly, that you'd be reunited with them. And As I was thinking about this, sadly, there are those who have never known feelings like this. Uh, sometimes you think about the things that you take for granted and certainly I take for granted in my life Uh, sometimes the things that you take for granted are that there are people who that everyone must have experienced some closeness and intimacy and love and affection for other people such that they were desperate to see them again when they were separated that even maybe somebody else felt that way about them but that they felt that way about another human being And sadly, if you travel the world enough and interact with enough people, even in our area, you're going to find that there are people, sadly, who have really never had those kinds of relationships that have been effectively neglected as it relates to human relationships in their lives, and that's sad. But yet God says, I have a solution here. I have, I have a way for you to experience this. And it may not involve your mother and father. It may not involve your siblings. Maybe you, didn't, maybe you weren't blessed to get to have those kind of close relationships with them. Maybe it won't involve a significant other or a, a spouse. Maybe that wasn't in the cards for you or it hasn't panned out that way for you. But I have a way here for you to see that you could have this emotion, that you could feel this way about other people, that you would be praying that you could see their face. And you think about some of you who could relate. It was likely that if you have felt this way past or present, it was likely a dear friend, a spouse, or a family member that came to mind when you were saying, have I ever prayed this before? Praying that I could see your face. And that's understandable. I mean, think of those people, dear friend, spouse, or family member. Those are the three most likely categories. If somebody, you would have felt enough closeness, you would, have put, you would have valued them enough, you would have loved them enough, you would have seen them as important enough in your life that you would have been praying this. But the thing about what Paul has to pray here or to teach us from God's Word here this morning is that Paul had this perspective toward all, all of these fellow believers. He had, there's all these fellow believers in his life and he's praying, that, he's praying about that corporate group of believers and he's saying, I'm praying that I could see your face because he regarded them, he truly regarded them as family. He put them on the same level as a dear friend, spouse, or family member because he saw them that way. And so when he was separated from them and unable to go see them or visit them, or spend time with them. His prayer was, I pray that I could see your face again. And God wants us to understand that sentiment, understand that principle, that we're to have that kind of affection and love and concern and care and compassion for one another. And it's not something that comes naturally, because the thing that comes naturally to us is all seek their own. We're not particularly interested in the lives of others. Even when we say we are or even when we wish we would, we don't actually and it's pr- the proof is in the pudding as we look at our lives where we consistently prioritize other things above and beyond the people that God has put in our lives, especially the people that are in our family of faith. And we come up with a million other excuses and reasons and, and arguments about why I can't avail myself of opportunities to see them face-to-face and to spend time with them while we make time for all these other things that are wood, hay, and stubble from God's perspective that are passing away, that have no redeeming value and will not last in terms of having any lasting value in eternity. So God wants to produce that kind of desire in you. And the way that he does that is by teaching you to see people the way that he does You see, God desperately loves people and if you desperately love people the way God does, you would be praying things like this. Praying that I could see your face just as it relates to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you've been missing out on this experience of feeling this way, God's saying I can produce that kind of desire. I can produce that in you as it relates to these other people that are here as a part of your faith family. Now it's going to take time perhaps for that to develop. It's going to take effort on your part. It's going to take you being willing to step outside of your shell. It's going to be, it's going to take you not being weary and well-doing and not giving up on people. It's going to take you having a heart of forgiveness. It's going to take you having some thin, thick skin and not being easily offended at every last little thing. Letting things go, it's going to take that. But if you can trust the Lord, he's going to produce all of that in your thinking. And he's going to bring about this desire where you could start to see other people in this family of faith, but even the universal church of Christ, you're going to see that or start to see them as people that you are desperate and looking forward to spending time with them and seeing them. So enough by way of introduction. Let's take a look at Paul's prayer here. Turn, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, if you haven't already. And we'll read through verse 13 here, this prayer in its entirety, and then we'll back up and draw out some observations or make some observations, draw out some applications from this section here of Scripture, yet another one of Paul's prayers. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So, wonderful prayer. Not overly long, but what a wonderful pr- prayer packed with different specifics and information but you read these first two verses for what things can we render God render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day praying exceedingly that may that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith so you start off with this section for what things can we render God for you all for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God Now this ties back to the content of verses 6 through 8 leading up to this, which contained a summary of Timothy's report back to Paul concerning these believers. And the report addressed their positive attitude toward both God and Paul. So Paul was encouraged and comforted to hear of their steadfast faith and love. Now you can read, this is just part of the report, but you can Read it here in verses 6 through 8. We we'll back up there. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he what did he bring us? He brought us good news. What was that good news? Good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us. So faith and love as it relates to just in general, but as it relates to Paul in particular, greatly desiring to see us, so we see that they had the same desire, and he says, and we also to see you. It's a mutual thing, this desire to see one another, as you look at this. And then, therefore, verse 7, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you. But what comforted us? Just the fact that they existed? No, they were comforted by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord, meaning it gives us life to hear that you're standing firm in your faith. Imagine being comforted and encouraged in the face of trials and adversity that you were going through that the thing you would find comfort in is not just anything in general but just hearing of other believers' steadfastness and their strong faith and their dependence on God to work in their lives. That the the thing that gave them strength or the thing that gave them encouragement in this time of trial and difficulty that they were going through wasn't that God removed the trial from their life. It was that God gave them this encouraging report as it related to these other believers that they had invested in and cared deeply about and that was cause for them to be encouraged. And I think that's the thing that gives us life, he says, hearing that your living life as unto the Lord, directed by the Lord, trusting, trusting the Lord. Man, I wish we could get to a point, we should be praying that we could get to a point where that kind of information is the thing that gives us life. You know, we seek to find encouragement and to seek to find the essence of life in so many different things. Whether it's news as it relates to our children. None of this is bad, by the way. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying we're, we're finding our life in these things. A positive news as it relates to something to do with work. A positive response as it relates to maybe some person that we have having difficulty with. Positive financial news as it relates to our bank accounts or things like that. Uh, positive news about things having worked out in terms of the lawnmower finally got fixed. These kinds of things. And we find our encouragement and the, the substance of our life, we like feel like that's what gives our life meaning and substance. And what a completely different perspective. The thing that's going to give Paul encouragement, the things that's going to give him comfort, is to hear about other believers thriving in their faith. What a takeaway there. That's obviously not the main point of what we're getting at here. But as we come back to what Paul is giving thanks for, it's their unwavering faith... Even in the face of persecution, it served as a powerful testimony to others. And Paul notes this in Second Thessalonians, this idea that they have this report that comes back about their love and their faith, their strong love and their strong faith for other people, including Paul, including ultimately God himself. And they are, they're known for that. I mean, Timothy is reporting this about them, so they become known for this. This becomes the thing that is their Testimony. Their reputation is this. And that reputation of unwavering faith, it was powerful to others. And Paul talks about this in Second Thessalonians, about these same believers in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, So that we ourselves, he says, we boast of you among the churches of God for what, though? For your patience and your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now, was their life a gravy train? either? No. Paul's life was difficult. He says he was comforted in hearing about their faith in the face of what he was going through, but they were going through the same thing. And the thing that gave them a powerful witness, a powerful testimony, a powerful reputation was that they had patience and faith in light of the tribulations and persecutions that they were enduring. Really encouraging. And Paul's saying this was cause for rejoicing personally and it was cause for rejoicing and giving thanks prayerfully to the Lord. And you think about that. Christians who stand firm in the Lord are an encouragement to ministers and teachers who can see tangible results of the Lord working in them. Now think about this from Paul and Timothy's perspective. They'd invested all of this time and energy, granted as empowered by the Lord, as led by the Lord, but they're still human beings. They had formed human connections to these believers and had invested in their lives And then when they see God bringing about, they're not taking credit for the results, but they see God bringing about results in their lives as these believers are responding to the Lord in faith and they're demonstrating this love that they have for one another. Paul's saying, I mean, just imagine how much that would encourage the one who has been ministering and and investing in these believers for so long to see those tangible results now ministry is not about results we're not results oriented but is it encouraging to see results to see people respond the answer is yes I think sometimes God doesn't give people who are ministering to others and you're all ministers I mean I happen to be a minister who's preaching this morning but if you're God's children and you're willing to serve him you're willing to be used of him then you're a minister for him a minister to who well to Him directly, but indirectly, the only way you really minister to Him above and beyond all other ways is to minister to others. God's primary interest is in directing you to be used of Him to spread and shine His light, to invest and minister to other people that He's put in your life. That's how you serve Him. And the Bible brings out that principle over and over and over again. So while on one hand, your primary mission is to live to lift Him up, To exalt Him, the chief aim of man is to glorify God, if you want to put it that way. True, but as I've said over and over, how do we bring God glory? Well, in some ways, by letting Him work in our lives, one of the ways He does that is to transform our lives, change our lives, to sanctify us, to set us apart. So that would bring Him joy and glory. But not for no reason, He's doing that work in us so that He can use us to accomplish the mission. And the mission is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and to minister to others again that we have in life. So here's another verse where John talks about this same principle about how encouraging this could be, how this could be a cause for thanksgiving in Paul's life to see these believers responding in faith. John shares that sentiment in 3 John one four when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, all that means is those that he's invested in, he shared the gospel with, he's invested in their faith journey, but to then to hear my children walk in truth. There is no greater joy I can have. And a challenge to, to parents this morning. Do you, got, do you got this? Are you convinced of this? Do you actually believe this? The temptation, and it's powerful, is to find your joy, and I'm talking about biological children now, to find your joy in your biological children, their success in so many other things beside that they're walking in truth. We invest so much time in seeing them thrive and succeed in these other facets of life when this is the thing that should provide us the greatest joy. But how could we even expect to Experience this outcome in our children if we don't even invest as much time into their spiritual well being as we do every other facet of their well being? How could we even expect this outcome? Let alone, probably, if you're thinking about it and being honest, God's saying invest more in this than everything else, not even equally in this, but invest more in this than everything else. And listen, I'm a parent. And I'm not holding myself up as some sort of an example of somebody who's getting it right or getting it, has it figured out. This is something you need to be praying for me about as I parent my children. And Lord willing, I'll be praying for this for you as you parent your children. But the reality is, are we convinced by this? Do we actually believe this? And if, and if we do, then it's going to change the way we go about our interactions with our immediate family, and you could make other applications, but for the sake of time, we won't. So hearing this report, it also caused Paul to give God the glory and thank him for making this outcome possible in these believers' lives. So we come back to our text. For what thanks can we render to who? To God for what? For you. For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. meaning that the, Paul and Timothy recognize that God gets all the glory, that God gets all the praise, that God gets all the thanks, that the gratitude really ultimately is to God. And so they make that very clear as they think about the joy that they're experiencing, the rejoicing that they're doing, as it relates to seeing these believers thrive in their faith, but they give God the glory. Then he goes on to talk about more specific or more general prayers, he goes beyond this general prayer of thanksgiving. And we see this in this phrase, night and day, praying exceedingly, and then he's going to list two things, that we may see your face, and that we may perfect what is lacking in your faith. And this is just, again, an expansion of this general prayer of thanksgiving. Now he talks about first the earnestness of these prayers how can you become more earnest or be how can you communicate more earnestness than night and day we're praying exceedingly now that doesn't mean every moment of every day it doesn't mean evening prayers or morning prayers and evening prayers it just represents this general posture of I'm going to consistently and continually pray my way through the day, as we talked about a while back. I'm going to be praying my way through the day. And as I go about my day, these are the kinds of things that I'm going to be talking to God about. And now he gets into some very specific things that he plans on or has been talking to God about. The first one, of course, is the title of our message, that we may see your face. He's praying to see your face or to see their face. So these two specific requests. Now, think about that. We may see your face. There is no substitute for for in-person fellowship. There is no substitute for in-person fellowship. I didn't come up with this. We live in a day and age, and I've heard it more and more often, where people think that they can redefine, well, everything, that there isn't such a thing as universal truth as laid out in God's Word, When God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other source of truth besides God's truth. Any truth that you're repeating or believing, if it's true, it only comes from God's word and it's fixed. It's not subject to your opinion, your emotions, your feelings, your perspective. It's fixed whether you agree to it or not. But as you're thinking about these kinds of things and you're thinking about just even truth in general, God says that you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He says there's value in in in-person fellowship with other believers. Full stop right there. And as I run into people, young people, frankly, it's surprising. Sometimes it's old people. They think that they can just redefine God's whole plan as laid out in his word for their spiritual success and that somehow that's going to work out. So it's, I've seen a lot of attempts to even redefine the local church, to take away from the importance of the local church. Now, the local church can, can be manifest in a lot of very informal ways. I'm not saying it can't, but it's still a church. It's a gathering, a regular gathering of people. And can you take advantage of technology? Yes, and you should. If your situation is such that that's the best means of doing it, if you're going to use FaceTime or you're going to use Zoom kinds of technologies, various kinds of Microsoft meetings or whatever these technologies are, and a bunch of people are going to gather as a, as a church and they're going to do it regularly and they're going to fellowship with one another in that way and they're going to see each other's faces even on the screens, is that an effective way to, to be a body of believers? And the answer is Yes. That's exactly how God might lead and direct in your life, but it's still a gathering of people with some set parameters in terms of wanting to gather in a way that would put the focus on the teaching of the Word of God, a mutual conversation and fellowship with one another, prayer, corporate prayer with one another, even celebrating things like the Lord's Lord's Supper, things like remembering what Christ has done, singing songs of praise, together is a part of what we talk about or the local church is described in the early church as having had be a part of their worship service. As you take that back to the Old Testament, you can see that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs were a part of the nation of Israel's worship too. They were an integral part of that. You can see it sort of all the way through as God is developing these core criteria and saying these are not things that you should mechanically, hoops you should jump through but these are things that would benefit a gathering, a regular gathering and we can incorporate some of these things. Now, are you wrong if not every one of those things is touched on every time or whatever? No, that's, again, between you and the Lord, but I see people saying, I don't need to go to church. I can listen to so-and-so online as I'm driving in my car, and that's an effective substitute for being around other believers. Not according to God's Word. Now, is it a productive and useful thing to be doing? The answer is yes. Yes. What a wonderful day we live in in terms of technology. I listen to spiritual things all the time when I'm driving. Very often, though, I'm just actually listening to the Word of God read to me through the app that I have on my phone. Other times, though, I'm listening to other Bible teachers from around the country. Praise the Lord that you have that available. But is that a substitute for being connected to other believers in a real, tangible, regular kind of a way? The answer is, that's not God's design. I have people say, well, I don't need to do that because a couple of guys once in a while we gather at the coffee shop we, mo- we mainly complain about our former pastors and our former churches and it's been super spiritually encouraging to me <laughs> so I don't really need church I'm being a little bit facetious but that's sometimes what tends to happen and you think about can that happen even as people gather here well yeah get off into a back corner or whatever Run all the people and all the things down that you don't agree with instead of just saying, I can be gracious about this. I can take things as from the Lord. I can do my part, want to be used. Maybe God can use me to be a little bit of the grease on some of the things that are squeaking around here. Maybe God can use me to be a little bit of paint on some of the things that are flaking and rusting around here. Maybe God can can make me or use me to be some of the screws or nails that hold together the things that are broken around here, a completely different posture than coming with this attitude of, I, all I have, all I want to do is to tear down. I'm not here to build up. But in any event, I could talk about that more. I think it's becoming a real detriment to many people that they think God doesn't know best and I'll just do this however I want. That wasn't in here. Now I gotta find where we are. Oh yeah, here it is. It was in here kinda. There is no substitute for in-person fellowship. Now, Paul previously expressed his desire to see them several times in the past. But he now reveals that his desire is accompanied by continual prayers. You see this in when you talk about him saying this in the past. First Thessalonians two, seventeen through eighteen. He says, What but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence not in heart, because he's, again, he's been thinking about them. They've been on his mind. He's been praying for them. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face. There we have it again. To see your face with great desire. Paul says, I long to see you in Romans. We'll get to that in a minute. I long to. But this great desire, it's not just to see each other like, oh, I'll just get it over with and I'll get through this and I'll put up with these people. It's this great desire to see their face and to spend time with them. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Is Satan interested in the gathering of believers? No, he's not interested in the gathering of believers unless it's to gather unbelievers who think they're believers for the sake of continuing to keep them blind. And that's happening all over the country this morning, too, under the guise or under the name of Christianity But no, when it comes to true believers, he doesn't want us to be gathering together because the Bible says we're stronger together than we are apart. That's why Satan isn't interested in it. That's why Satan's trying to deceive you and convince you that you don't need this, that this isn't important, that other things are more important. It's overtly satanic. Because in fact, the Bible says that if you avail yourself of all of the blessings that I've given you, one of those blessings was one another, that's going to be contribute to your success in your spiritual well-being, in your spiritual growth, in your spiritual life. That's a fixed fact. So if Satan can get in the way of that, can tear churches down, can close churches down, can cause divisions in churches, can cause people to think they don't need churches, he's one on that front though God is ultimately going to win and be victorious regardless of whatever Satan has to do or planned. So the question is, are you praying about your desires and then trusting God to undertake with any potential fulfillment? Are you praying that he would give you desires to value personal interactions and fellowships? fellowship? Are you praying that he would give you a desire to spend time with the family of faith? What, again, whatever that might look like in your life within Within the parameters of the Word of God, though. Again, lots of variation is available and possible, but still within the parameters of what God's Word says is best. Now we'll move on to the second specific prayer request here. Oh, sorry, that's not it. It's where he says, That we may, we'll insert that. So he starts with, That we may see your face, and then he moves on to, That we may perfect what is lacking in your faith. So that we may see your face was his first request. Now that we may perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now here Paul explains why he wants to return to them. It's not not just so that they can have a good time. You know, my kids when they were young, a lot of times when you'd ask them to pray, one of the things that they would pray for is pray that we can have a good time. And that's just representative of a childlike mentality. But ask yourself, how many of your prayers, if you're being honest, if you really went through them and you really thought about what you're really praying a lot of it has to do with having a good time to some extent that things would work out that god would be a magic genie in your life to fix all the things that are wrong and what we i hope we've been seeing in this this survey of some of paul's prayers is that the things that a person who wants to grow wants to draw nearer to the lord wants to develop in their faith their prayers would take on a different flavor And it wouldn't be at the exclusion of all of those other temporal world types of problems because those are hard problems. Those are real hardships that God does want you to cast on Him and bring to Him. It's just that we wouldn't exclusively pray for God to fix and make our lives good, all the things that are wrong. We'd be focused on, God, I want you to transform me, my mind, so that my spiritual well-being could benefit and I could become more like you. So Paul, as he's praying, it's not just that I want to see you for no reason. I want to see you. I want to see your faith so that God can use us to perfect what is lacking in your faith. And this word perfect involves completing something that's incomplete. Now, what is lacking in your faith? It refers not to a lack of faith in general, but rather the need for deeper understanding and spiritual growth and maturity. Paul isn't questioning their faith here in terms of are they God's children? He's praying about giving them more of what they're missing in terms of doctrine and teaching and and personal growth, spiritual growth, a deeper understanding of the matters of faith, which it takes hearing the word of God and being taught some of those things as you also spend time and invest in God's word for that to ever happen in your life. See, Paul's desire to see them, again, isn't primarily self-serving. He wants to be used by God to correct Restore and equip them further. And you see that in Romans one eleven here. He says, for I long to see you. We have this great desire again. We saw that from chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. But I long to see you. Now, for what purpose though? For my self-satisfaction? So for my amusement? So I can have some socialization in my life? So I can make some business contacts. No, I, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift for what purpose? so that you could be built up, you could be established in your faith. What a mindset is, I want to serve the Lord in your life by being a spiritual encouragement to you. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul that was capable of being a spiritual encouragement to others. Look around at who's here. You're not like any of them. You're uniquely you, but at the same time, God has given us a common mission, which is to strive together for the furtherance of the gospel, but also to minister to one another as motivated by love. But God has uniquely gifted you. You have unique talents. You have a unique amount of time. You have a unique amount of treasure that God has gifted you with. You're not me. God says that if everyone comes together, though, there wouldn't be anything lacking or missing. Everyone could then do their part, use the gifts that God has given them, their, their own individual time, treasures, and talents, to minister to the needs of the, the body and to evangelize the lost. So look around. The thing that God might want to use you for is unique to you. It might be unique to you. But yet, are you seeing other believers with an eye towards now that I'm here today? I, oh, I haven't noticed that person. I'm going to I'm going to just maybe say a quick prayer here in my seat and say I don't know what I could what you could do with me, Lord, but I'm willing. Would you give me the moxie <laughs> the boldness to go, maybe all God wants to do with you is to have you introduce yourself. (laughs) Let's like, let's not set the standard real high here. (laughs) Maybe he just wants you to walk over and very bravely say, hi, I don't know if I've met you before. My name is Gus Lehman. Maybe it's not any deep message that he wants to communicate with you on that. Maybe you just need to be a friendly face but that's going to take having a friendly face. Some of you are scowling at me now. Hey, frowns into smiles. Up, Turn frowns upside down. The point is sometimes we make this out to be something more than it is. God will show you. God will use you. How do I know that? Because he's the one who gave you certain abilities to begin with. Are you suggesting that God has no ability to use the very gifts that he gave you intending that you would use them for his glory? Come on. I'm not a math genius, but that doesn't even track. That's Paul's perspective. See, the proper mindset of a servant is serving others. You say, God wants me to be a servant. (laughs) Well, a mindset of the one who is a servant is that they want to be used to serve others. There's a song, I think it was a Ron Hamilton song, but years back that I try to remind myself of. I don't do the greatest with it all the time, but he, would, he was saying a song that said, Make me a servant like you, dear Lord. What was the next part of that? Living for others each day. Humble and meek, helping the weak, loving in all that I say. So you think about that song and those lyrics. Shouldn't that be the kinds of words that are going through your mind as you're seeking to be God's servant? You know, he came not to... Be served, but to serve and give himself his give his life as a ransom for many. He gave us the ultimate example of what a servant-minded, selfless love would look like. Then he says, I want to produce that kind of love in you. Now we move on to verse eleven here. Verse eleven says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So we have some repetition here. You could ask, Do you think Paul really wanted to see them? So verses 17 and 18, he says, you have, where did it say it? I wanted to come to you many times. I endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Does Paul want to see him? Yeah. He then says, I've been praying these two specific things that I could see your faith and that God could use me to perfect what is lacking in your faith. And now he says it again. Now may... This is a petition to God. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Yeah, he's repeated himself over and over again. He has a great desire and longing to see other believers. One quick observation. Who is he addressing this prayer to? Now may our God and Father himself and, and may our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Some of you knew that I was liking this song called Talking to Jesus. And I was wondering if it was theologically accurate because Jesus, when he taught, gave an example of prayer, he said, our Father. And we've generally prayed, prayed, dear Heavenly Father. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep doing that. That's my plan to keep praying that way. It's just what I'm familiar with. But even that is a little bit formal, considering that prayer is just to be inclining our thoughts and even our words. They don't have to just be words, but thoughts and words, including in a conversation, having a conversation with God. And doing it as we pray our way through the day, there doesn't have to be any specific formality to it. But we're addressing those concerns to the Father. But according to this verse, it's perfectly appropriate to include those petitions to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So maybe I'm proof texting just to support my like for this song. But I think there's one other place I found where that's true, where the prayer is directed to the Lord Jesus Christ in addition to the Father. So again, sometimes we think things are fixed in stone and there's actually more scripture that we haven't really come across that would cause us to be less than dogmatic about each and every one of those things. But we see this here. Here's another example of Paul expressing this desire. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness. Now, l- catch this again. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. We have I long to see you in Romans 1.11 that we just looked at. This is not the typical mentality that we have for one another, though this is to be the kind of thinking that we're to have for one another. If you long to see somebody, I mean, imagine when you first, that gal or guy first caught your eye and you're like, I, you know, I'm interested in that person. <laughs> <laughs> Come hell or high water, nothing was going to stop you from flipping your whole life around in circles to make time for and to get to see that person. You'd drive through the night. You'd go without sleep. You'd go without food. You'd skip your job, skip your work, skip your, skip your school. It'd all go on the back burner if you were tr- in that kind of heads over heels phase. It's a phase to some, to some extent <laughs> because there has to grow to be more substance than that at that early stage there isn't even the substance and foundation for that to be something that could last and that's why so many things flame out right the reason that they end up lasting is because that leads to hopefully getting to know somebody in a more personal and intimate and deeper way, and finding that instead of being just infatuated with this situation, you actually can understand what a, a deep love or affection is really about, where you see the personal qualities and the, hopefully, from a Christian's perspective, the love for the Lord in that person, that that's the kind of thing that can sustain your interest in your relationship and your love can grow on those kinds of foundations in any event the point i was getting at is this i long to see you if that was your perspective as it related to other believers there wouldn't be all these other things that get in the way that's all i'm getting at i'm not trying to make you feel bad but i am trying to challenge you and me at the same time we have to think about these things we have to be honest with ourselves when we're self-deceived, God can't work with that mindset. If you're deceived about your interest and you don't even realize what it really is, then how can God work with that? You have to see where you're really at. So in any event, we see just another example there in Philippians 1.8 of Paul's deep desire and affection for these other believers. Now this phrase, direct our way, can also be translated clear or smooth our way. And it likely refers to two separate desires on Paul's part. One is direct in the sense of leading him to return to them, undertaking. And the other is smooth and clear in the sense of overcoming or removing whatever obstacles might prevent him from returning. Now, he already said he sees Satan as the one who has hindered this in the past. So direct in the sense, make this your will, Lord, that you are moving me and leading me in this direction. Smooth and clear the way, though, Lord, as the word can also be understood, in the sense of removing these odd obstacles that have been hindering this from occurring or preventing this from occurring thus far. Now, Paul recognizing that, recognizes that God's intervention and direction is needed because he's had this desire to visit them for quite some time, but there have been these barriers in the way, and we already kind of discussed it. So, are you praying that God would undertake to lead and smooth as it relates to your desires to fellowship with and minister to other believers? And there's just another example of Paul repeating this desire of his own. Now we move to these last two verses, verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all. He is saints. So now Paul communicates this specific intercessory prayer for their spiritual well-being. So he was praying for himself, that I might see your face, that I might perfect what is lacking in your face, that God might direct our way to you. But now he starts to pray for them in a very specific way. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. You know, so some of you who are like, man, he talks about loving each other all the time and it just makes me so uncomfortable, and the thing is that the Bible talks about it all the time. And here's just another example of God's desire that we would learn to have His kind of supernatural love for one another. And what a prayer request for a local church that you may increase and abound in love to one another and then to all, I take as, to be outside of the family of faith. But why even pray this? Why, why would Paul even need to be praying this? Doesn't this just naturally occur? Obviously, I'm being facetious there. No, it doesn't naturally occur. This is a supernatural, selfless, and sacrificial love which requires a supernatural power source. God is praying that, or Paul is praying that God could bring this about through the power of His Spirit in the thinking and the lives of these believers. You can't produce or manufacture this kind of love. Paul's prayer to God, the reason he's bringing this to God is because they could never produce this kind of love just by self-determination or for buckling down and trying really hard to make this true in their lives. God would need to do this because this is selfless and sacrificial love while the natural default is I'll love you just as much as you love me. I'll respond to you when you respond to me first. What have you done for me lately? That's human love. God's love is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional. has no concern for what you've done to deserve it or what another person has done to merit it. His love is manifest to us when we don't deserve it. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made a way for us to be reconciled to himself through the sacrifice of his son as his son died in the place of those who could never earn or merit or work or deserve heaven. People who were hopeless and helpless apart from God's intervention on their behalf. You see, if you're here this morning and you've never heard the gospel message, it's all a message of grace. You've probably been singing it your whole life. If you've been around churches, you've been singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You've been singing it without knowing what you were singing. Because see, the Natural man wants to believe that some people deserve heaven a little bit more than others, and the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. There's not one person who deserves God's grace. Every person stood equally condemned by their affiliation with sin, their association with sin, the sin of Adam and their own personal sin. And God couldn't overlook sin because he's a just God. And there's a payment or a penalty that sin demands. And God explained that to Adam and even the garden, and he said, if you eat of this, you will die both spiritually and physically. Death meaning separation from God. By virtue of your sinfulness... And having identified and aligned yourself with rebellion against me, you're now separated from me because I'm perfectly holy, spotless, sinless, and righteous. And I can't overlook the result or the fallout or the debt that is owed because of sin. So if you've never understood the good news of the gospel, amazing grace that saved a wretch, you have to see that you have a need, that you were born dead in trespasses and sins with no hope of life. You were born looking forward to an eternity separated from God in the place where God isn't, which the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. That's, what, that's the future that you were looking forward to without God in your life. But God sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer says to the apostle Paul. And the response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ephesians, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is a gift from God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. Titus is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. In Romans, Paul says, Now to him who does not work, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for Righteousness. See, once you see that you have a need and you see that Jesus fixed or solved that need when he sent his only son to die in your place, to pay the debt you owe, to pay the penalty you owe, to die for sins he hadn't committed, to pay for and cover the sins that you had committed. So as he paid for those sins on your behalf, there's a payment now available to apply to your account. The payment was sufficient to apply to and offset the debt that all men owed. So the payment is available. The question is, will you apply that payment to your account? And the Bible says you do that by faith. You accept God's gift of eternal life and saying, I can't save myself. There's nothing I could do to rescue myself. No, no amount of good works could save me. No amount of church rituals could save me. Nothing could be done to fix this problem unless you made a way where there was no way. And when you realize that and accept that Christ's work on your behalf was completely satisfactory and sufficient to undertake to deal with your need and to fully pay your debt and that there's nothing you could do to add to the salvation that Jesus offers and that any attempt to add to it would be to in fact reject that gift because to receive a gift means that it has to be freely given but it also has to be freely received You can't work for a gift and it still be a gift. If it's gonna be grace, it has to be all grace and have nothing to do with you. And so the Bible says that your response is to accept by faith what Jesus has already done for you and to receive that gift. The Bible says that he made him, Jesus, to become sin for us even though he knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of god the moment of our faith we are clothed with christ's righteousness and now god doesn't see us in our sin anymore he sees us as clothed in or in the standing of his son who is righteous perfectly righteous so now that we've become righteous not by virtue of being right or being good but being clothed with christ's righteousness now that we've accepted christ's gift and his offer on our behalf god can accept us into union with him Because now we're not identified with sin anymore, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel is that you don't do anything. It's about what's been done for you. It's not about what you can do for God, it's about what God has done for you. So be thinking about that as we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute here, which is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And so as you think about this specific prayer, this specific prayer is that the Lord would make it possible For them to abound in love. Now remember, this is again that supernatural kind of love. Now once you are saved, the Bible says that that moment you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God now can produce a supernatural way of life in you. So remember I was saying this is a supernatural kind of love that you can't produce on your own. But now God can produce it in your life, and that's exactly what Paul is praying for here. And the increasing and abundant or plentiful love, it's supposed to, you see this? It's supposed to be extended to all. Love for one another, that is, increasing and abounding, but also love to all. You see, there's no preferential treatment cliques or social structures with God. And there shouldn't be with you either. There shouldn't be in the church either. So he says, just as we do to you, it indicates that Paul and his companions had personally experienced this in their own lives as it related to their growing and abundant love for these believers in particular and for all believers in general and for all people in a sense of an evangelistic focus. So he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another just as we do to you. God has worked that, brought that about in our own lives so that Now, this identifies the desired outcome behind Paul's prayer that these believers would increase and abound in love. What is the underlying desire? That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So as you think about, what are we talking about here? Well, serving God, it begins with getting over yourself. That's what this selfless, sacrificial love that Paul is praying, God would produce to to increase and abound in their lives. So that involves getting past yourself, death to self. And the first application of that spiritual perspective is observed through your love for others. That's the first way that you can see this idea of death to self. That I'm now, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ. And the application of that is that God's love would now be produced in and through you as it related to other believers and to everybody in general. And you see this here in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. This is the natural outpouring of God producing, increasing, and causing to abound this kind of supernatural love in your life. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, to love as Paul desired his converts to love would result in their living, sanctified lives. So you think about that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. The the idea there is this process of sanctification. If they're loving the way that God loves, their lives would be sanctified because they would be fulfilling God's primary objective for their lives. Developing God's kind of love, this sacrificial and selfless love, for others it's representative of growth and maturity as the primary reflection of loving God is observed through loving people. And how do you love people? By serving God. How do you serve God? By serving others. That's why you can see it real rapid fire through these. A new commandment I give to you in John 13, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another that way sacrificial and selfless love. By this, he says, all will know that you are my disciples. That's the evidence of this blameless and holy life, this sanctified life, as God is producing this change in your life. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. One of the primary ways of doing that is to produce supernatural love through you as evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your life. Romans 13.8 says, "O no one anything except to love one another. Not, not anything else. Owe no one anything except for to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law in its entirety. Galatians 5, 13, and 14 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wants to establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, talking about spiritual growth, having a sanctified, set-apart life, before God, but then it says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it refers to Christ's return and the bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ evaluation that will follow. Naturally, that's going to be a blameless evaluation where you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you've been allowing God to produce his manner of living and produce, make his priorities your priorities and to work in your life as he sees fit, as we would be a vessel in his hands, he's going to be able to say, well done to that. Because we've been able to get ourselves out of the way enough, to get over ourselves enough, to finally let the Lord work and undertake and use us the way that He sees fit. So, praying to see your face. Do you, do you feel this way about fellow believers? Do you pray like this? Do you pray that God would help you and others increase and abound in love? You see, apart from understanding the depth of God's love for you and allowing Him to produce that kind of love in and through you, it's impossible to live in a way that would please Him. You can't live in a way that's going to please God apart from Him working in your life. So, you, th- you know, as you come here this morning, you th- my prayer for you would be that we would all see that we need growth in this area, that we'd make these kinds of things a regular matter of prayer as it relates to our own lives and the lives of others. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. I'd spent some time to talk about how somebody could become a child of God, be born into God's family. There's only one way. It's through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. It's because of God's grace that God could look past our sinfulness and he could love us anyway. Unmerited favor of God as God would make a way for us. Now how did he do that? He died on a cross He shed his blood in the place of sinners like you and I. And so as we think about the good news of the Gospels, that there is a way for us to be made right with God. It's free to us, but it costs Jesus everything. As Jesus had to give up the glory of heaven, come to earth, take on the form of a human being, and die in your place and mine. It cost him his very life. It cost him having union with the Father as the Father turned his back on him, as the sins of the world were poured out on Jesus. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured the equivalent of hell for you because he loved you so much. And he said, it's simple. Children can understand this. Will you accept this? Will you put your trust in this? Will you believe in this? And if you believe that I did this for you because I love you, and if you believe that my work was complete, it was finished, there's nothing more that can be added to it, and if you realize you can't contribute in any way, And you just put your trust in what I've done for you, that moment, you're born into my family and I'll never let you go. So, if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, I'd ask you to consider why not? What's been preventing you from doing that? In the quiet of your own heart, right where you sit, you can make a decision to put your confidence and accept what Christ has done. You say, I believe that, I accept that that's true. I'm convinced and persuaded to put my trust in that. In that very second, you'll now have a new birthday, a spiritual birthday, where you'll have been born into God's family. And you can look forward to spending all of eternity with him because he says, and John says, that these things have I written unto you who believe, that's the only caveat to it, who believe in the name of the Son of God. I wrote these with the purpose, though, that you may know that you have eternal life. That refers to a quality of life here in time, but it refers to an eternity to be spent with God in heaven, getting to live life with him in a perfect place. But you know, the alternative is that if you continue to reject Jesus and say, I don't need him, the Bible says that apart from him, the alternative is that you'll have to spend all of eternity paying for the debts of your own sin, even though Jesus already paid the debt, because you didn't ever apply that payment to your account. You didn't make it personal. And so, though the payment was available, how tragic would that be that you're in the lake of fire, forever separated from God for all of eternity, in a place that there is no joy, there's no happiness, there's just wailing and gnashing of teeth? And you're thinking about that existence for all of eternity, all because you thought you had a better idea or a better way of saving yourself than the one that Jesus offered by taking your place. I pray that that wouldn't be the case, that today would be the day of salvation for you. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a believer, I would pray that you just prepare your hearts and think about how often do I live in light of Christ's sacrifice for me. Because this is just a remembrance. This is a ritual of, of sorts that we go through to be intentional about remembering the blood that was shed in the body that was broken. But the instruction actually, do the, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But at the time, it was sort of associated with just breaking bread and having meals in general as they would gather on a regular basis and eat bread and and have wine at their meals together. And they would take a moment, as they were doing that, to just remember Christ's sacrifice. Shouldn't we do that each time we gather? When you pray before a meal, shouldn't you remember Christ's sacrifice, even in your own homes? And in a sense, you're celebrating or remembering Christ's death till he comes. That's the point of it. So as we do that this morning, would you prepare your hearts so that you can do it in a manner that would be worthy, that you're actually thinking about what Christ has done for you. If you got anything to